Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Scaling Up Nation, Trace Blackmore here, and we are doing answers from the audience. Of course, I call that pinks and blues. This is where you write in a question to me and I try to answer it the best that I can. Now, I'm gonna go ahead and do another show that's all themed around particular types of questions. And these are all questions based on testing. So you're out there, you're a water treater, you are trying to figure out what's going on in the system. And of course you do that by your powers of observations. What do you see that's different between this time and last time from your visit? You get all of that information and now you're going to grab a water sample and you're going to start testing it. We already know that we want to make sure that that water sample is not off of a low flow area, that that water sample is indicative of all the water that is floating around, that is circulating around the system so we can get a good accurate sample. So we're going to assume that all of that has taken place. And the next thing we're going to do when we get into our test kit, or even when we're taking samples, especially when the samples are hot or they might be in a dangerous location, we want to make sure that we have all of our PPE in place. That's personal protective equipment. And what that does, that protects us. That gives us a barrier for getting hurt. Now, one of the things that I see far too often that I don't like is people going into mechanical rooms and they don't have hearing protection. Folks, the equipment in those mechanical rooms is loud. And if you know somebody that's been in this industry for a long, long time, they probably have some sort of hearing loss. Let's learn from their mistake and make sure that you have hearing protection each time you go into these rooms. Yes, it might make it difficult for you to talk to your customer. Yes, it might feel different. Yes, you might not like having hearing protection on, but wouldn't you prefer all those inconveniences to losing some or all of your hearing? Same thing with your eyes, folks. Make sure that if you are working as an industrial water treater, you are using eye protection. It just takes a second for something to get in your eye that could change your life permanently. And then the last thing I'll mention about that is gloves. Folks, if you're not carrying around nitrile gloves with you, and I say nitrile because I'm not a big fan of latex, a lot of people are allergic to latex, nitrile is very compatible with pretty much everything that we would have in our industrial water treatment test kit. If you are not putting on gloves before you open up your test kit, there's just no reason to take that risk. And don't think there's not nasty stuff in that test kit because you're carrying it around. If you get some of that stuff on you, it is not good. So make sure you take care of yourself before you take care of anything else. Now, here are a couple of questions now that I've gotten off of my Scaling Up H2O soapbox that uh, people have written in. So my first question is from an earlier episode, and the person is asking about when iron interferes with a hardness test. And I'm sure we've all had this issue happen. We just can't get an endpoint on our hardness tests. 
So on an earlier show, I shared a tip that somebody shared with me, and they were asking me to go back through that. So, oh, fine, I will do that. So you've got different reagents in your hardness test kit. One, you've got a buffer because we've got to bring that pH up to a certain uh, pH in order for the stuff to work. Then we have some sort of color indicator that we add and that tells us when we've hit that set point. Typically that goes from red to blue. I think that's where the term pinks and blues came from. And then finally, we have an EDTA, ethylene diamine tetracetic acid, that will simply cover up all of the hardness. And when all that hardness is bound up with that EDTA, it changes the color and we can translate that into parts per million. Well, in this issue, we're just never getting there or it's a lot higher than we can back calculate it for it to be. So what is going on with that? Well, nine times out of 10, it's normally because we have high iron. And there's no mystery about that. Run an iron test and see how high your iron is. And if it is an iron issue, you've got a couple of options with this. Anytime you have something that's interfering with your test, you can always dilute that interferer out. So that's why we carry deionized water in with our test kits is so we can dilute the sample and get whatever's interfering to a low enough point where it's not going to interfere with it. And then we just need to multiply however we diluted it back up. I think I talked about that on an earlier episode. But in this specific technique, what you're doing is you're adding one drop of EDTA before you do anything else. And you're going to count that drop later. So when you start your testing, if you put one drop in, you're going to start at two drops. But what that does, that starts to bind up any of those metals or whatever the interferer is, which in this case, it's iron in that test. So it's not going to interfere when we're going after the calcium. Then we're going to run our test exactly like we would before, putting our buffer in, putting our, our color indicator in, and then titrating with the EDTA. But again, we're going to start with the second drop. Or if you're using a digital titrator, you're not going to reset your dial in between preparing and that first drop. So when you do that in your procedure, you should get to that endpoint a lot quicker and a lot clearer. So hopefully that will help you out. Uh, another person asked a question that, can I just do this as part of my regular procedure? Well, no, I wouldn't advise that because you are deviating from how that test was developed and you're doing that because there's a problem. If you don't have that problem, there's no reason to deviate from your test methods. Remember, every time you deviate from the standard test method, you're adding another variable in that could throw off your test. If we change the dilution, if we add DI water, if we change the order of reagents, those are all things that could potentially change change the end result of the final test. So you don't want to do that if you don't have to do that. Another person writes in and they ask, why are they getting such bad results on their sulfite? And there was a long email that came with this. Instead of reading the whole thing, I'm going to sum it up. Basically, they don't have a sample cooler on their boiler. Their sulfite results were always extremely high. And they figured they didn't have any issues. When they opened up that boiler, they saw 
pitting, and that was oxygen pitting. And if you've ever seen oxygen pitting on a fire tube boiler, it looks like somebody took a shotgun and just shot it. That is exclusively what oxygen pitting looks like. And they wanna know how could this be because they were running their sulfite tests and it always said that they had plenty of reserve sulfite. Remember, when we run a test, it's the reserve that we have. So we're not testing what's already been used up, it's what we have to be used in the system. So I talked to this person and we found out that they were taking a very hot boiler sample and then they were immediately testing for sulfite. And folks, if you do this, this is not following the procedure. It specifically says in the procedure that for sulfite, you have to cool your test. And the rule of thumb that I've always heard is less than 100 degrees. And uh, a good friend of the show, good friend of mine, Mark Lewis, he carries a special bottle where he can cap and then throw in a bucket of ice if there is no sample cooler. Because what's going on there, if you have a hot sample and you start doing the sulfite test, well, folks, that's a starch test. It's a starch test and you put iodine on it and then that's what creates that black color. Well, the starch comes from potatoes. So essentially what you're doing is you're cooking the potatoes and there's not enough starch in there to react with the iodine and you're thinking you have more sulfite in your sample than you actually do. Very simple, easy way for you to fix this problem and it's to cool your sample. Now, I don't understand why it's not a code that every single boiler have a sample cooler on it. For heaven's sakes, engineers, look out for the water treater. We don't like getting burned just like anybody else. Put a $200 sample cooler on that boiler and just make them standard and we would never have this problem. But there's so many boilers out there that don't have sample coolers. My first recommendation is you sell your customer a sample cooler. But the thing that will work each and every time is to make sure that your sample is cool and the hottest that the sample you ever want in anything you test is 100 degrees. Normally, room temperature is, uh, is the ideal. But if it helps you, 100 degrees is absolutely the hottest you ever want to get that test. So once you do that, you're going to get a more accurate sulfite reading. And folks, don't look at your test as the end-all be-all of what's going on in the system. Testing is just one additional thing that you can do to grab more data from the system, but you're using your powers of observation along with the testing when I talked to this person, there was no reason for him to assume that his tests were right because when I looked at the logs of how much product was being used on a weekly basis, there was not enough sulfite based on the temperature of that water for it to be that high. So he should have immediately said, I'm not feeding enough product. My test does not seem to verify that the little product that I'm feeding is putting that much sulfite in the boiler. So that should have keyed him off that there was a problem. So use everything you have available to you, including your tests, to verify your test, and then you will be able to use your test better and more effectively. I've received several questions around spectrophotometers, and I'm really happy that more and more people are investing in themselves, investing in their companies, and they're using spectrophotometry 
And what that is, that takes the guesswork out of what color is that. I might see red a little different than somebody else. Somebody else might see blue a little bit different than how I see it. So what a spectrophotometer is, is we prepare a sample, it shoots a wave of light into that sample, and then on the other side of that, it has a sensor to see how much of that light was absorbed and it translates that into parts per million. And the number one issue that I see with this type of equipment is that it's dirty. Folks, if you put your sample cells down on a dirty floor and then put that dirty flask into your nice expensive spectrophotometer, well, that spectrophotometer is now dirty. So I suggest that you have better habits on how you handle your sample cells so they don't get that dirty. And I also recommend that you clean those on a regular basis. The cruddier your glassware is, the cruddier your results are going to be. But this person specifically asked if you can use a DI blank, so they got DI water in their test kit and they wanna use DI as a blank in their spectrophotometer uh, instead of using the sample water. Let me try to explain this a little bit better in case you're not tracking with what they're saying. When you use a spectrophotometer, you have to put an unprepared sample into the device, shoot the wave of light through it, and now it knows without anything prepared in the sample. So if I'm doing an iron test, I'm gonna put something in there to prepare it to test for iron. It wants to know in the absence of that, what can it expect to go through that water? And somewhere in the water treatment community, we started using uh, dummy samples to try to make our time less on those accounts. So the answer is it's not preferred because again, you're using a deviation from the actual way that the test was written or the procedures were written. But here's the short of it. If you are testing, say, a cooling tower or a system that is just perfectly clear, you might be able to get away with it. What you need to be able to do is realize when you can't. And I've looked at this and I've actually used this technique a while ago. And what I found was I didn't really save that much time. If I had a repeatable procedure where my muscle memory, I didn't even have to think about how I was running my test, I could do one sample blank. And folks, it's not that much more time involved in pouring a sample blank than it is to squirt in your DI bottle. So my advice to you is that you follow the directions, the way that the directions are written. And with any test, whenever you deviate from that, you are asking for potential issues that you may not realize that they're there. Now, if you have a sample that uh, you know without a doubt that there's no difference, go ahead and do it. And if you're curious, run both and see what the difference is. That's the cool thing about our test. And I get so many questions. Can I do this? What happens if I put this with that? Well, folks, try it. If you do one exactly the way it's supposed to be done, and especially if you have a sample where you know what it's supposed to be testing as, and then you run your different ways of running the test, you'll be able to find out very quickly whether your hypothesis of making that change will work or not. So I hope that helps. And uh, I wanna thank all those people for asking those questions to me. 
Folks, if there's one thing that I can leave you with is that your test kit is a tool. I have seen so many water treaters get out of their car, go into the mechanical room, spend the entire time in their test kit, write a report, and then they leave. Folks, that's not our job. But what we can't hire is somebody that understands all the aspects of water treatment like the true water treatment professional. I'll say it again, water treatment professionals use their powers of observation to see everything that's going on in that system since the last time that they were there. They're looking at the equipment. They're checking how much product was used. They're talking to the people that are on site each and every day to find out if there was a change. And then after they've already made an assumption of what's going on in the system, that's when you get your tests out. I already know what my test should be before I even open my test kit. And then I'm using my test to either verify or disprove what I think is going on in the system. And then I've got to figure out the whys of whatever I found out was going on. Then I make those changes. I talk with a customer. I make sure that any changes that they need to help me with or be aware of, they are doing. And then when I come next time, when I'm looking at what's going on in the system, I'm looking at the changes that I made last time and make sure that all those changes did take place. And then finally, I'm running my test and I'm hoping that I see those positive results. Folks, thanks again for asking those questions. Thanks for listening to Scaling Up H2O. And if you have a question and you want to get it answered on Scaling Up H2O, go to scalinguph2o.com, ask me your question, or you can leave me a voicemail. Folks, if you do that, I will give you a t-shirt and you will be able to wear that and you will be the envy of all your water treatment friends but at least make sure that you are asking me questions because folks, I'm doing a weekly episode and I need all the information that I can get. Have a great week, folks, and I'll talk to you next time. 